0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In today's collect, we ask, uh, we are presently asking God to give us the grace to daily endeavor ourselves to follow the blessed steps of Jesus, most holy. Life. How often we forget, especially one such as myself, that's been a Christian his whole life, that's been in church multiple times a week his entire life, forget that what it means to be a Christian, that we are called to imitate Christ. To be little Christ. Are you then a Christian? Am I a Christian? And I'm not talking about where we're going when we die. I'm not asking if you prayed the sinner's prayer in 1987. I'm asking if we are like Jesus, if we're in fellowship with Jesus, if we are in practice little Christ. The Apostle John says in his first epistle, he who says he abides in him, that is in Christ, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Hypothetical situation. If I were to ask one of you if you're a runner and if you were to give me An unqualified yes yet you haven't run a single mile since 1999 then you're a liar but but father Matt I've got running shoes I've got the brand new Garmin we get that right runners run followers of Jesus follow Jesus Uh, there's an old meme which, think about that phrase. Memes are now old. We can have old memes. They've been around long enough. <laughs> There's an old meme of Jesus is, in, Jesus is in his first century garb, and he's sitting on a park bench uh, next to this, I don't know, like hipster guy in 21st century apparel. And the caption is, no, I'm not talking about Twitter. I literally want you to follow me. followers of Jesus follow Jesus and this is precisely John's argument in so many words in his first letter if anyone says I know him but he doesn't keep his commandments he doesn't follow him this isn't moralism Remember, the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Because if anyone says, "I know Jesus," but they don't follow Jesus, what does John say? He is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Spicy. Now, anyone who has or is. Even attempting to follow Jesus knows that it's difficult. That's why we prayed in the collect for grace. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need, in classical Anglican language, ghostly strength, or we're going to get nowhere. But what is grace? I mean, it defies description. But we can do our best. Now, many of us have been taught, especially if we're from Protestant backgrounds, that grace is unmerited favor. That's the definition. Anybody ever heard that? Okay, good, okay. Well, maybe not so good. But it's like grace is unmerited favor, period, full stop. And that's sort of right, but it's incomplete. Because grace, and this is even an etym- etymology of the word, is as, as gift. It's by definition unmerited, but that doesn't really tell us what the gift itself is. Grace is the life of God. And so the Christian life is participation. In God's own life. In Christ by the Spirit. Now what does this long-winded introduction have to do with Joseph and his brothers? As we're going to finish up the patriarchs this morning. Well, quite a bit actually. Because one of the things that makes the life of Joseph so amazing is its likeness to the life of Christ. But there are 150, 200 points in the story of Joseph from Genesis chapter 37 to chapter 50 the end of the book where it parallels the story of the gospel. Joseph's story bears a likeness to Christ and Joseph is Christ-like. Joseph is an imitator of Christ. We saw this in today's reading that Joseph forgave his brothers. Joseph forgave as Christ forgave in his earthly sojourn. As the Father has forgiven us in Christ and as we ought to forgive one another. What do we pray Sunday by Sunday? What do we pray day by day? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We forgive because God has forgiven us. And the only way that we can truly forgive others is by understanding what it means that God has indeed forgiven us. C.S. Lewis writes in The Weight of Glory. I wanted to avoid quoting him. It is true. An Anglican can preach a sermon without quoting Lewis, but it's just so good. He writes this. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is hard. It is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single great injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life. To keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it? Only, I think. By remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, forgive us our trespass as we forgive those that trespass against us. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. There is no hint of exceptions. And God means what he says. The forgiveness which Joseph gives his brothers is an imitation of Christ's forgiveness, of the Father's forgiveness to us in Christ. Now let's talk for a second before we go further. Let's talk about what forgiveness is not. What it isn't. Forgiveness is not saying that what happened... That the offense is okay. It's actually saying the opposite. Forgiveness is necessary precisely because it's not okay. So here's something real practical. So if you say to people, when people ask for your forgiveness, if, you, if it is your want to say it's okay or don't worry about it, something to that effect, stop. Stop doing that. And if when you ask for forgiveness, if someone says to you, it's okay, correct them. I'm dead serious. (laughs) Now, about once a year, really probably once in every 18 months, I will sin against someone in my household. It's a very rare occasion, but it does happen, whether my wife or my children. And I've apologized to... Windsor, for example. And and I say, I'm sorry. And she has said, Daddy, it's okay. And I'll say, No, baby. It's not okay at all. That's why I need your forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean that what happened was okay. Forgiveness doesn't mean you're over it. Forgiveness doesn't mean all the hurt is gone. Forgiveness is not identical with reconciliation because that involves both parties. Your part is to release, to let go, to offer that forgiveness, but for reconciliation, for a relationship. To be healed, the other party has to be willing to receive it. There has to be, and it works this way with God. There has to be contrition and intention of amendment of life. Joseph's brothers then received forgiveness. In the life of our Lord, many standing around the cross did not, though our Lord desired it and offered it and prayed for it when he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. A good measure of whether or not you've forgiven someone is whether or not you will his or her good. His or her ultimate good. You could still desire to see some temporal justice, but you know, vengeance belongs to the Lord. Forgiveness is not oftentimes a one time event. Meaning you can forgive someone, and then a few weeks down the road, months, years, you think about what he or she did again, and you you pick that bitterness and resentment and hatred right back up. Then you have to forgive again. It's maybe one of the reasons, like, Christians have been praying the Lord's Prayer thrice daily since the beginning of the church. It's easy to pick it back up. Joseph's brothers thought that's what Joseph was going to do. That his forgiveness was going to be short-lived. It's amazing what Joseph says to his brothers in in Genesis 45. You have that in front of you. And it reveals so much about his character and his Christ-likeness and so much about God's character. He forgives them. He has this eternal perspective that, yes, what you did was wrong, but don't beat yourselves up because God used it for good. But after today's text, eventually, he was an old man, Jacob, their father, the patriarch, dies. And the brothers get worried. Like, okay, he forgave us because he loved dad, and that's what dad would have wanted him to do. He forgave us for the sake of our father, Jacob. But Joseph in Genesis 50 assures them that it was not saying this. He says, do not be afraid. For am I in the place of God, but as for you, you meant evil against me but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, in closing, let us look at this from both sides of the relationship. Because if considered from the brother's perspective, it it may be a source of encouragement that God can work good even in spite of, even through our mistakes. God knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. He knows that at times on the narrow road that leads to life, all we'll be able to muster is a crawl, much less a run. God can work in spite of our failings and even through our our failings to bring about his purposes. Now, that doesn't mean that our mistakes aren't mistakes, in the case of Joseph's brothers, God worked good through it, but that doesn't mean that them plotting to kill him, throwing him in a well, and selling him into slavery were good things. No more than it means that Judas's betrayal, even though God worked through that, because he was handed over to suffering and to death, and through that wrought an eternal salvation, that therefore the means which God used were in and of themselves good. What it means is that we serve such a loving and merciful and powerful God that he can work our ultimate good even through wickedness. God can work good through our mistakes, not that our mistakes are good, and God can work good in and through our suffering. This is the The narrative considered from Joseph's perspective. God, through the suffering of Joseph, brought him to the height of human power. He became Lord of all Egypt. Through the evil committed against him by his brothers, his brothers were delivered from the famine. They were delivered, them and their children, from starvation and death. Do you hear the gospel in this story? It is through the humiliation and suffering and death of Jesus, who came to his brethren, who came to his own, and they did not receive them, that Jesus has wrought an eternal salvation through his suffering and death, after which he was exalted in human flesh and seated at the Father's right hand as Lord, not just of Egypt, but of heaven, and earth. What is intended for evil, God can use for good. So let us take heart. It can be hard to do. To count it all joy, as James says, when you suffer. Not that you're happy about or taking joy In the suffering itself. But you're taking joy in the sovereignty and character of God. Knowing that if you cooperate with grace. If you allow the Holy Spirit amidst the suffering to work in and through you. God will make you perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. That none of the pain in this life has to be for naught. But God can take it, though it's not fun, though it's not enjoyable. God will take it if we will cooperate again with his grace and bring about our own salvation, our own good. We are in Christ. So let us imitate him, knowing that his story is our story. That's what it means to be in Christ, that his, his life is vicarious on our behalf. Know, brothers and sisters, that if you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt you in due time. God can work in and through our suffering. In fact, God works all things together for good. For those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. And his purpose is to unite us unto himself. So, brothers and sisters, let us imitate Joseph as he imitated Jesus Christ, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns. One God, now and forever. Amen.